finding out, finding out that story is the most effective way of communication, and it's no accident that that's primarily what Jesus used in uh, communicating with people. To begin this on, a, on quite a light note, uh, being uh, this adult ADHD person, even driving the car, I am mostly distracted. And there are signs on the road now to not be driving in a distracted fashion. So I tend to leave my phone in the back seat, and I still sometimes try to reach it. Uh, uh, and uh, the last word that my wife says to me when I leave in the morning is, leave the buttons alone. You know the cars that we have now? Isn't it amazing how many messages you can get on the dash? And there's information that I need to have right now. And when I am struck with the need for information, it's not get that information five minutes down the road. It's get it now. And so, uh, so I live in this highly distracted kind of world and mindset. And only when I'm really on task do I, uh, do I focus in on things. So as a distracted person, you can well imagine that I lose things. I am constantly losing things, and I am the kind of person when I remember way back on the farm, and I'm going to talk about my family a bit later on, when my dad would send me for something to the tool shed or, uh, or to the barn to get something, or my mom would get me to pick up something, I would go and look exactly where they told me it was, and it was never there. As the youngest of five kids, for some reason, I got this ability to never be able to see what's in front of me. I have three children. Our middle daughter has the same skill as I do. She can never find anything. When we asked the other two kids over the years when they were growing up to go and find stuff that we were looking for in the house, they would always find it immediately. So I now know that if I'm even looking for something of a minor consequence, I will only find it on the third time of checking. And it will be right in front of me, but somehow it wasn't visible the first two times I was there. So on an extremely silly and uh, light, just to get this conversation started, I have a closet full of way too many clothes, most of which I don't wear anymore. I only have two pair of pants that I wear. And last week, two weeks ago, I lost my brown pair of pants. I turned the house upside down four times had to be there. Finally, I decided that somebody had stolen them before I finally found them right in front of me where I had been looking the whole time. There they were, waiting for me to pick them up. For the last week and a half, every time I walked past my wife in the house because I like to keep her alive in the same way on my wavelength, I said, I found them. I found them because I now am living in that place where I'm constantly losing stuff. Her Brent, some of you know, elderly man, 91 years old, great friend of mine, he says the reason those of us over 50, 60 and older are so busy, and I talked to my friend Al today, who's now sort of retired, that, and he says he's busy. Mr. Brandt says the reason we're so busy is because we spend so much time looking for those things that we just had. And that's so half my day. I'm looking for things I don't have. So it feels that much of my life is filled with loss. And that's the serious point of the day today. Loss. How do we deal with things lost from little to great? So, Ruth Ellen, take it from there. So, I want you to... Uh, hello, everyone. I'm Ruth Ellen. No. Um, 
I want you to just talk around your table. Now, first thing is, if you have not uh, met the people around your table, then take a few minutes just to do that and introduce yourself. And I will give you a tip when you're introducing yourself to someone in a place like Jericho. You don't say something like, hi, I'm Brad, are you new here? Because the answer to that could be no, or it could be yes. So you say something to the effect of, I'm Brad, I don't remember if we've had the pleasure meeting. I've forgotten. I've lost my mind. Something like this, all right? So go around your table, introduce yourself to each other, and then just take a minute and think about, what's the last time that you lost something? Dan lost his brown pants. When's the last time you lost something? And then, were you able to find it, or is it still lost? All right, so talk around your tables. We'll give you about two minutes to introduce yourselves and think about what you've lost. All right, now, what were some interesting things that were lost at your table? Stick your hand up if you want, uh, and I'll come around with the mic and just say, what is something interesting that was lost that was shared around your table? Okay, Aria, what, did, what was lost? I lost my stuffy a couple years ago. Did you find it? No. Oh, no, that's too bad. Okay, Sienna, how about you? Lost my tooth. Whoa, that's a good one. You lost your tooth. Okay, carry on. I lost my appendix. You did lose your appendix. Yes, <laughs> that's true. In, in a manner of speaking, it was lost. <laughs> too funny. Okay, who else? Hand up. All right. What about, what did you guys lose? Well, I had misplaced my cell phone, and I was installing pot lights in the house, and I called my phone, and sure enough, it was vibrating in the ceiling. <laughs> well done, Matt. <laughs> okay, what else? Uh, Emma, what did you lose? Uh, Emma lost her mini white blanket. Oh, was this a very special blanket? Like, yeah, oh, no. Did you ever find it? No? Oh, my goodness. Lots of things lost that have not been found. Okay, anybody else at their table? Yep, all right. Larry, what did you lose? Well, Liz doesn't like talking in public, <laughs> so I'll tell this one. Liz was working in a uh, bakery, and uh, she noticed that the diamond of her wedding ring was missing. And how many hours? So they searched and searched. How much time do I have? Uh, anyway, she found it by sifting through the, um, they, you swept, swept up all the, the all the, and then they sifted and then found the diamond. All right. What did you lose, Maddie? I lost my, my pet, my whatever. Your stuff, your stuffy? Which one? My bunny with the purple bow. Oh, no. That's too bad. Yeah, lots of... Sorry, Walter. Um, packing away uh, the Christmas decorations one year, and my hands were very cold from the weather. Uh, and uh, I went to wash my hands uh, afterwards, and I go, oh, no, I've lost my ring. Where is it? And looked around and consulted with Sheila, and we decided that it was probably in one of the boxes, and we'll find it next Christmas. So I went without my wedding ring for a year. 
All right, Lorraine. I think one of the best stories I ever heard about Lost was um, about two years ago when we were in Mexico. Since Daryl and Jody, you know that they work through the Vineyard Church. Um, this was at the Vineyard Church, and this couple had lost their cell phone. And they're more along our age, so they didn't think to phone their cell phone for about three days. So they phoned their cell phone, and at that very moment, one of the people that makes their living up at the garbage dump was picking through garbage was going through that particular bag. The phone rang, hola. They said in Spanish that um, this is their cell phone, and on Thursday when the vineyard comes up with lunch, could they give it to the tall guy on the bus? They didn't want their cell phone for the sake of the cell phone, but for their contacts in it. So I just think that is providence, God's providence. <laughs> All right, Daryl. Um. Last year, Ben lost his uh, bag on the bus when we were in Mexico, and we were kind of at the end of one of the lines, and a couple hours later when we realized it, I walked over to one of the bus drivers, and I you know, looked up how to say what I wanted to say, and uh, I was hoping that he could radio around and see if someone found it, and, and he's, like, he's like, oh, bag? Yeah, he reaches around and grabs it. It wasn't the bus that we were on, but they had communicated that a young boy at this end of the line, had lost his bag. They had shuffled the bag, and he was sitting there waiting with it. That's cool. Right on. Well, I'm sure there were lots of great stories around your table of things that were lost, and we're going to continue in our theme. Uh, at this point in the morning, we're going to dismiss the youngest kids. So it's uh, our usual format for Epic is that grade one and up stays with us here around tables. And so if you are in kindergarten or younger... And you've been checked in. Unfortunately, the uh, internet here at the LEC is not working today, so it's a paper-based check-in. So make sure if you're a parent that you've signed your child in. And uh, then Dave and Jane are going to head upstairs. And you can escort your children upstairs if you're a parent of a child with a kindergarten age or younger. Now, while this is happening, for the rest of us, there's a little bit of a scavenger hunt if you want to participate. Some of you will want to just scavenger hunt for a coffee refill, and that's totally acceptable. You know where to find that. That's fairly straightforward. Others of you, we're going to put up the first clue, all right? And so there's five clues in this scavenger hunt. And so at the location of the first clue, you will find the next clue to where you're supposed to go, all right? So the first clue is when you lose something on a Sunday morning at Jericho, where might you go to see if it has been found? All right, you think you know the answer to that one. Then you're going to go to that location. I'm not going to give you any hints or clues, okay? And you're going to go to that location and see if you find a clue for the next one, all right? So we're going to give about five minutes for that to happen. Parents, you can head upstairs with your kids. Scavenger hunt to happen. And then um, uh, coffee refills to be happening. I will say, adults, at the end of the scavenger hunt, there's a prize. So you... You may want to kind of participate as well in this. And then in about five minutes, we'll continue on with storytelling. And uh, you may want to just look through. You heard Daryl and Jody tell some stories about Mexico. Uh, you might want to look through our People and Projects Guide, which is just being released this morning, and spend some time around your table talking about that and exploring that together. Uh, Daryl and Jody at the back in their uh, ministry and mission in Mexico. Okay. Okay, we're ready to go. If you want to find a seat, unless you want to remain standing as I do. 
How many of you have pets at home? How many have dogs? Have a dog. Okay, we have a handful of people that are dog owners. I said that I grew up in southern Manitoba on a farm. And in, uh, in those days when we had uh, dogs on the farm, they were both pets and working animals. We had about 100 head of cattle and maybe 40 pigs or so on, and so the, uh, the dogs and the cats were part of the working animal crew. The cats kept the rats and the mice out of the sheds, and the, uh, and the dogs chased the cattle for us. But my dad had a rule that any calls to the vet to come in and work with uh, sick animals and so on only related to the uh, livestock that we could make money from, the cows and the, and the pigs and so on. And it was a clear rule that never would you spend a vet dollar on a dog. We didn't inoculate them. We didn't even feed them, really. They looked after themselves, and they were, depending on their personality, they were our good pets or our, our friends and pets, or they were just simply working animals. But they fended for themselves for the most part. So as a result, we went through a number of dogs. They'd get sick, or they'd get, they'd, uh, something would happen, and they would disappear. Not only that, for some reason, because we were out in the lonely country, our dogs always chased cars. And I had forgotten about this until I was back in Manitoba last week and I was driving down this country road, absolutely no cars around, drove past a farmyard and a dog came shooting out of the ditch and at the car and almost ran into me. And I remembered that's what my dogs would always do, our dogs. And of course, there were accidents would happen, right? And dogs would cease to exist because they had an altercation with the cars on the road. Anyway, when I think I was four, five, maybe six, uh, one day Dad came home with a new dog. This little collie crossbreed, uh, kind of golden in color, orangey, beautiful curly hair, and just an absolutely marvelous personality in this little pup. We could tell right away that this was a friendly one. And uh, again, being the youngest of five, and my siblings were all quite a bit older than I was, and uh, I was, those of you that are younger know that when you're the youngest in the family, you are neglected and not taken seriously, uh, but they of course remind us that we're spoiled, but it's not true. Uh, so I had to resort in having a relationship with my dog, Sandy, and had an incredible relationship with Sandy, became my best friend and my constant partner, he would go with me everywhere. I even took him to school on occasion, and he'd wait for me outside and uh, wait for me to walk home. I walked about a mile and a half from school in those days because I'm really old. And uh, it was a one-room school with seven grades, so it was way, way back. And my dog would wait. And one of the reasons he would wait is because we also, being the kind of new immigrant family then we were, uh, we and our family ate homemade bread and homemade butter. Nowadays, that would be a treat. In those days, it was a great embarrassment to me because all the other kids in the school had bought bread and bought butter. So I wouldn't eat my lunches. But my buddy, my buddy Sandy, <laughs> he would eat them on the way home because I got into trouble if I hadn't eaten my lunch. So Sandy and I were very good friends. I would try to sneak him into the house on occasion uh, but dogs weren't allowed in the house, so that always created uh, some issues around the family table, especially when mom came in one day and I had 
put a plate and a chair at the table for Sandy, and he was sitting there on his haunches looking across the table. <laughs> but that's the kind of uh, relationship I had with this dog. Now, I said that dogs in, in, uh, in that farm setting chased cars. My cousins, uh, there was a family of 10 kids down the road, six boys and four girls and my cousin, of cousins down the road. And they were a little older than, uh, than, uh, than I was. And one day, David got a 55 Chevy, and he came over to show it to us. And coming up the driveway a little too quickly, he turned right at the house and drove right over my dog, Sandy. In fact, stopped with the rear wheel right over Sandy's midsection. I, of course, started screaming and yelling, you've got my dog. David jumped out of the car to see, and there was my dog trapped under the back wheel. He quickly jumped back in and pulled off the dog, and then we stood around and watched to see how this dog would be, because we'd all seen dogs in accidents before. I, of course, knew immediately, as much as I loved the dog, there would be no visit to the vet for this dog. It just simply wasn't done on farms. My cousins went away, and I sat with, uh, with Sandy for a while, and uh, it looked like he was going to be in very, very bad shape, that he was, he was very badly hurt. Now, I'd had dogs before that had been badly hurt, and they recovered well. But it was clear after a day or two days that Sandy was not going to recover. He was not eating, he was not drinking, and he was just lying beside the, the back door of the house. And when I would talk to him, his tail would lift up and fall down on the, uh, on the ground again. I, of course, was very saddened, asked my dad a couple times if we could uh, go to the vet, and as kind as my dad was in most instances of his life, that wasn't to be. One morning, I, maybe four or five days afterwards, I came outside and the dog was not at the door. I went looking for, uh, to the barn to find my dad, and I said to dad, I can't find Sandy. He says, well, he'll be around somewhere. He says, when, when dogs are hurt, and when there's a possibility that they'll die, they, they leave. They go somewhere. You look around. I looked and I couldn't find him. And by noon, of course, I was back at the house. It was, uh, it was summertime. I would say by this time I was 11 or 12 years old. And when Dad came in for lunch, he said, I found Sandy. He's out in the pasture field, about 100 meters past the barn. And he's in, uh, he's in a set of shrubs. He's lying there. He's okay. I mean, he's, he's still got his head up. He's, uh, he's talking. You can go see him. I went out to the shrubs and sat with my Sandy, put his head on my lap, and hung on to him. His eyes were glazed over. I now know what that means. His eyes were glazed over, and I sat for most of the afternoon with my dog, and then went back to the house, went to bed late at night, wouldn't eat anything. Boy, I'm still emotional on this. This is interesting and uh, cried myself to sleep. In the morning, Dad woke me up and said, your dog died. I've left a spade by the back door of the house. I think it would be important for you to go and bury your friend. As a boy of 11 and 12, I'd never lost a parent, a grandparent. I was completely unfamiliar with loss and death around something or someone important to me. But Dad said I should go bury him. So I took the spade and I went out and I got to about from here 
to the mobile I have hanging there away from him. And that's as close as I could get. I could not face the loss of my dog. I don't know how many weeks, maybe months, I've sort of compressed time on this because it's a long time ago. I went with the spade and got this close. My dad, either out of his wisdom or, or uh, his understanding of what it means to be a parent and what it means for a child to grow up and face things, I'm not sure. We never talked about it. He always watched from a distance. He knew what I was doing. Over the weeks and months, I watched, and this is sort of a, a tough part of the story, not suited for Sunday morning church, I guess. I watched my dog over the hot summer disintegrate. And finally, by the end of the summer, all there was was a few pieces of fur and some bones. And I never got to more than 10 meters close. I just, I could not face the loss of my dog. There are two things that that taught me that uh, we move into the next section with. I realized years later I lost two things in that loss. I lost, of course, a pet. An absolutely incredible friend, and we've, we now know that when people lose pets, it is like losing a person. It is like losing a, a, a friend. So that, at that basic level, I, over the years, and when I had to write in a counseling course the five most painful experiences in my life versus the five most pleasurable ones, of the five, the loss of that dog was one of the five, and it was the only topic through which I cried. The other, which should have been more serious losses in terms of, of a hierarchy, but it was the loss of Sandy that was the one that, that broke me open emotionally. So it was a basic loss of, of a pet, a friend, uh, a dear one in that sense. The other thing that I lost, and I've only realized this as an adult, I lost my innocence around whether I was a true friend because I realized in being immobilized, in not being able to bury my friend, because it's very basic to humanness, I think, that we, we honor. We honor those that we've lost through some kind of ritual of burial or funeral or whatever it is, or saying goodbye. I lost the sense of innocence that day that when my friend really needs me, I don't come through. So two large losses in that one. That's chapter two of our journey towards understanding loss this morning. Brad? One of the things that's interesting uh, that Dan began to highlight for us is that sometimes when we experience loss, we have a hard time actually naming it as such. We live in a culture that's pretty... Uh, adverse and pretty denial-oriented when it comes to death and loss. And so therefore, sometimes we become detached a little bit uh, from our emotions in those experiences. Now, on your table there, there is, in the very center, underneath the plates, is a little bit of a, a pictorial worksheet for you. And there's two sides to that. The one side is more uh, pictures, and then the other side is more of a 
a wheel or a descriptor of different ways of feeling or being. And so around your tables there, just get out those sheets and think about maybe a loss that's happened in your own experience. Maybe a loss of a pet, like Sandy, Dan was describing. Maybe a loss of a person in your life. And try and just utilize that a little bit. And then there's some markers, some colored pencils on there. Try and get at that a little bit and figure out what were the things that you were experiencing in that journey. What were the things that maybe surprised you about that? Um, and then maybe if you're uh, brave enough, talk a little bit about that around your table. And we'll give you a few minutes uh, to do that. And as we do that, the band's going to come. And in a few minutes, they're just going to play a song, which is lifted straight from the words of Psalm 13. And that gives expression to this sense of sometimes when we experience loss, we're not even quite sure how uh, to name it and what that looks like. So first, we'll give you a couple minutes around your tables to look at those emotions and to share some stories with each other. And then we'll reflect a little bit on that in music. If I could have you look this way, what I have hanging here is uh, what you will all recognize as a mobile, which most of us are introduced to in, uh, in children's bedrooms. We have mobiles hanging above uh, our kids' beds, or when we were kids, we had mobiles above our beds, and we had them in our family, of course, uh, with little duckies and fish and things on it, and the kids play with it. And I took some time to find this one that didn't have some sort of plastic Fisher-Price music along with it. Uh, and, uh, and the reason I use this, I do, uh, I do what's called family systems theory workshops on understanding that how, how we behave as individuals is shaped by the families we grew up in or what we inherited emotionally, spiritually from generations before. And, and basically how I function in relationship to people has a, mostly how to do with how I operate in my family. And to understand uh, the messages of my family is how to understand myself. And if I'm in relationship with you to understand something about your family background, we will understand one another better. And one of the best symbols for understanding family and churches and organizations and any grouping of humans together for me, one of the best is the mobile. And so we can draw all sorts of connections with this. So if we could say this represents family, this would be dad, this would be mom, this would be little me, to continue that theme. Uh, although uh, uh, now that my parents are past and I talk too much, uh, my daughter says that this is me now. I think I'm the... <laughs> she says, you think you're the biggest one in the world now, but uh, I'm talking now, so I have to go other place to talk. Um, but what that does, what's, what's important about this thing is that if that represents a family, if we are in a normal stage, we're going to work, we're going to school, the car's working right, and everything is sort of what we might call normal, although we are knowing less and less what normal is, but if things are sort of okay, then it's, then it's balanced like this. However, 
When grandma dies, when dad gets sick, when there's a car accident, when we fail a test, you name it, when something happens to any person in the family, this is what happens to the mobile. It gets disrupted. And so even though it's maybe I went to the doctor's office and found out some bad news, it affects absolutely everyone else on the mobile. So it's a really fascinating uh, image for us to understand, and that happens in the church again and in, in organizations, companies, everywhere we're, we're connected. Now, those of you that are married, you can imagine that when you marry someone who's from another mobile, so whatever happens in either one of the families affects everyone in this one in a greater or lesser way. So, you know, I nattered so much about this that, uh, that uh, at the church I pastored in Richmond for 20 years at the Fraserview Church, and, and I, I talked about this as a model of understanding how we live together so much that when I finally resigned after 20 years, uh, the place sort of, not because I was great, just because I'd been there so long, uh, people would call me or email me and say, boy, our church mobile is just standing sideways now. Because they understood that things have changed. We're going to ask you, I'm going to come back to this in a minute, and, uh, and I think, Brad, you'll direct this or somebody will. We have items on the table for you, and I would like each of the tables to make a mobile. Do you want to give some more direction on that, Brad? Or you've got you've got a little you've got a cups. You've got I think string. You've got uh, longer pieces, probably of straws. Try on your table working together. It'll probably take you ten minutes or so. When I did this with a bunch of plumbers a while ago at the uh, at the hockey arena at the Coliseum in Vancouver, I'd broken hockey sticks and pucks and and black tape, and then I said. The first, the first team to get their mobile mate gets uh, to meet Gordie Howe tonight. This was about five years ago. My, you should have seen those guys go at that. So uh, anyway, so try together as a table to make a mobile because that will help to cement the concept, which will be really important down the road as we, as we complete the morning. Just to keep us moving along here, you can well imagine as you keep working together there and there's a busyness in the room that's it's really good, how, when you see this as a model, how when a, when a boss leaves or an important person in the, in the place leaves or a, parent, a family member dies in the family, a child or an adult or anyone, how the system is disrupted. How everything is now topsy-turvy. It's where the word comes from. And so to understand and put words to the fact that the place is really dis... or the, the system, the family, the organization is now in disruption is really to understand when you look through, uh, through this model. You can well imagine then too... I'm going to interrupt you here. Uh, you can either finish, keep going and working together and listen to me natter if you like or you can just set it aside and finish it later, whatever you like. But I'm going to talk. We've got a few things I want to say before we break for there or we end for the day. So if, if it is true that the mobile represents the disruption of loss, not only in a family, but if in you're a church family and you lose 
people, and I think you've lost some people here in the last while, either moving away or through death, right? You can, you can feel it in the room. You feel it in, in, the, uh, in the community because it's, it's socially, emotionally disrupted. Now, here's a really interesting thing. When a mobile is disrupted, you well know that over time, it rebalances itself. There's a big word for that. It goes back to a new balance. The theory says that in the time that it's unbalanced is the time that we can make changes in thinking and in behavior. So for example, in my family of five again, when my mom passed away, way back in 1988, and we as a family gathered, the five children and our spouses and our children and so on, we are a family that really likes each other, but we're not big on, on hugging each other and saying, I love you. We didn't, do the, we didn't do the love talk, hardly at all. But in that week that we were home planning my mom's funeral and then walking through the funeral in the couple of days after because we came from all across Canada, the five of us and, and you know, the 15 or 25 of us in total. In that week, we were touchy people and we expressed love to one another like we never had before. Why? Because the system was disrupted. It was, it was a new day. There were new rules for behavior because the old rules were disrupted. We even talked about the fact this feels really good to be this nice to one another because I was, my family was really raucous. I grew up with the feeling of we would say to each other as kids, you stink, you're ugly, let's go play. And, and we were never hurt by those feelings. Of course, I married a woman where you were hurt by their feelings were easily hurt. And so every family manages differently on that. But now in the face of my mom's passing, we were really nice to each other. And we said, we need to stay this way. Do you think we did? Yeah. We didn't. <laughs> and we remembered it again when my dad passed away six years later. And we were nice to each other again, verbally and affectionately. And said, you know, we missed the opportunity last time to change. Because you can, when, it, when the mobile is disrupted, you can make good, positive changes. And one family I worked with in Abbotsford, I said, and I knew the family was really disrupted. And they lost their mom. And in the family meeting to plan the funeral, to plan what was going to after, I said to the oldest brother, who was sort of a bully in the family, and I knew this from knowing the family, I said, turned to the oldest brother in the family meeting and said, you know... I'll say his name is David. It isn't in case he's got relatives in the room. I said, you know, David, if you've ever wanted to change your behavior in this family, now's the time to do it. You've got 30 days. Because in 30 days, your family will reestablish its balance again and you won't be able to again. So apparently, and not apparently, within the next week after mom's funeral... The oldest brother and his wife invited his siblings and their spouses over for a family meal which they had not had in 20 years. That happened five years ago. They had, that family system has met monthly for family meals ever since that event. Because in that first month, they changed their behavior. Realizing that every, the system was new. So when something disrupts the mobile... That's the time to make positive changes. 
or it will go back to the old pattern. So it's what we call the new normal. So it's really helpful to understand that stuff. Now let me tell you a couple of stories here as we move on where the clock is, uh, is ticking. I went to University of Winnipeg way back in the 70s. I had a good friend, a very, very good friend. He uh, eventually became the chief of the Swan Lake Indian uh, uh, First Nations uh, community in southern Manitoba. We graduated from university in 1972 and we lost each other until 2012. For 40 years, we didn't see each other and didn't communicate. Then I Googled him at the beginning of 12, found his name, found out where he was. He was back on the reserve uh, in southern Manitoba at Swan Lake. And so in summer of 2012, I drove up to his house. He came out of his house and we embraced and we cried together. This, this big First Nations guy and myself, big tough guys. We'd been 20-year-old rowdy kids together back 40 years earlier. And we were both stunned that we had such an emotional connection together. So we agreed that we would uh, get together and tell stories over the years. And we did it a couple times. And then three weeks ago, I was back in Manitoba. I contacted him again and said, Lloyd, I'm coming over to see you. I want to spend a day. I need to hear uh, what's happened to you in, in your life and over time. He said, I'm not feeling well. This was, I was back in Winnipeg. Uh, he says, I'm not feeling well. Come back to my house on the reserve in three days and uh, on next Tuesday, that was a Saturday, I was at his place and, uh, and we'll spend the day together. I went back on Tuesday, the house was locked. He wasn't there. I flew back to Vancouver and the following day, his wife phoned and said, I'm sad to tell you that your friend Lloyd just passed away. She called me the next day again, just, she was just, of course, she was overcome. She was on the side of the road phoning from her cell phone. She said, but we as a family would like you to come to the funeral. So last week, I spent three days at a uh, First Nations funeral in southern Manitoba, an exercise I'd never been at. I'd never been. I'd visited him on, the, on his uh, home reserve three times over those years, but never at an event like this, and sat together with a community of 200, 250 people in that First Na Nations uh, community and watched them around the death of this person who had been chief for eight years and had done things across Canada and made huge difference. But my response to the thing was that I, I, was, I was overcome. And you know what? I have hundreds of friends that I'm running into now at this age as I'm looking back on life that I meet and I'm not the least bit emotional about. But this man, I was really emotional about. So in terms of my own personal emotions, the death of, of Lloyd, who I had nothing to do with for 40 years, it did this to my emotions. So when I was back at the wake on the Friday, they had the wake Friday afternoon and evening with the drumming and so on, and the next day they had a feast and the funeral and the burial, and I was with them through that whole, that whole event. And the family was interested in how I remembered Lloyd, and they wanted me to tell stories about what he was like because, of course, we all have different relationships with people. Uh, and they asked... Uh, why I had come back from Vancouver for this. And I said, well, a number of reasons. I, have a, I had an uncharacteristically deeply emotional relationship with Lloyd that I don't understand. And I wanted to honor his memory and come back. And for selfish, the selfish side is I wanted to understand why I was so emotional, why I was so disrupted. First, in, in being friends with him again or reconnecting and now in his death. 
one of the, the native women, one of the First Nations persons came to me at the wake and said, the Great Spirit will tell you. I went back to my brother 45 minutes down the road overnight between the wake and the, and the funeral service itself, so-called. And during the night, either in a dream or in, uh, in uh, a moment of wakefulness, I remembered at the university in those days when we were young 20-something guys, I described us telling the, the story to the larger community as two young, wild, but gentle young men together now, uh, now had become old together and wanted to tell stories to another. I said, one day in the cafeteria at University of Winnipeg, he had told me what his, what his in his terms, Indian name was. And he, he translated the, the, the words, of course I couldn't repeat them, uh, meant that his name meant that he was the, the steam, the mist above a, a body of water, which we see this time of year, right? And then he gave me an Indian name. He gave me an Indian name, which of course I have no memory of, of what it was, because I couldn't pronounce it. So during the night, I remembered that story. So I came back, when I came back to the funeral, and, uh, and I was asked to say something about that, I said during the night, I, in a moment of wakefulness, and I said, and you may say it's, it was a message from the Great Spirit, uh, however you want to describe this as something. I said, I remember when Lloyd told me what his name, and he gave me a name, an Indian name. And I said, I think that explains the deep emotion between us. When we live in community together, we know one another's names. We name our own children, and I have a habit within my larger family that I give all of the kids, all my nieces and nephews, they all have their own name that I have given them. I never call them by their own names. I have a name for them. And they're now, and some of them are 45, 50 years old. If I refer back to their name that their family's given, they're always disappointed. They say, Uncle Dan, you didn't call me. Whatever it is, I call them. So in community, so if you, as you, you lose people, that you have been on a first name basis, you share knowledge of one another around the names, that explains why the whole community goes into a kind of, of sense of loss or disruption because the system is now out of balance and you need to find a new way of living together without that person. So a quick story. I was working on a farm in southern Germany when I was 19 years old and one day a man named Herbert who I was cleaning the chicken barns with, I said something to him which offended him. He took his pitchfork, we were forking chicken manure with, and he stuck it in my chest and he pushed me up against the wall of the barn. And I really expected that I was going to die that minute. And for some reason, well, mom was praying for me at home, I know that, but uh, for some reason he, he didn't injure me that. I felt pressure on my chest through the tangs of the fork and, and then was really careful around Herbert after that. He was a bit of a crazy man. Uh, he would get angry at either me or the boss or someone else, and I worked on the farm for six months with him. Uh, he would lose it. One night, one of the other sons of the family that I was working for was home on the weekend, and uh, he invited Herbert 
this man who was a hired man and I was sort of a cultural worker in the family, an MCC salt worker, whatever you call it. So I was sort of halfway between the family. The workers were here in terms of status and the family was here. So I was in middle ground. But so the youngest son took Herbert and myself out to a, to a little uh, sort of a, a, an event in town where we rode bumping cars and stuff and then came back and sat in, in Herbert's room. And Herbert told his story. And it was the only time he really opened up to me and uh, up to us in those six months. And here's what happened. When he was 14 years old, in the middle of the war in Germany, his three older brothers had been drafted into the German army and had gone off to war and were in Stalingrad during the horrible war, World War II. Those of you that are history buffs know that that went really badly for the Germans and the Russians defeated the Germans in that battle. Herbert, as a 14-year-old, most 14-year-old boys would be in the army in World War II in Germany, but because his three older brothers were in, he was exempted. But one day, when he was 14, his father called him up to his room. His father was a very cruel, harsh man. Called him to his room and said, Herbert, we have not heard from your brothers who are in Stalingrad. I am sending you to Stalingrad to find your brothers. I have arranged for you to go through the supply lines from southern Germany to, to uh, Stalingrad to find your brothers. And so away Herbert went. He went in trucks and whatever they, however they traveled. It took him three weeks to get to Stalingrad and arrived just as the big final battle took place between the Russians and the Germans. And the Germans got completely routed. Herbert, as a 14-year-old, saw the dead bodies of all three of his brothers. Then with the breakdown of the, of the German soul, uh, military machine, the man who had accepted responsibility to look after Herbert says, I can't look after a boy on a family holiday. You're on your own. So here he was in Stalingrad, a 14-year-old kid from Germany, three brothers just killed, and he'd seen with his own eyes. And he had to walk back to Germany. And that's what he did. He walked back to Germany. He got beat up. He got jailed. He got caught in a barn fire. He got everything horrible and unimaginable happened to him. He lost all sense of time. And you can well imagine that emotionally, he lived with a sideways mobile and spiritually. He did not realize in the loss of time and the horror and of all the stuff that happened to him, it took him four years to get home. When he arrived at home, he came over the hill, over, over the village where he, where he grew up, and mom and dad lived in this little German village, house and barn together, traditional German village. If you've traveled there, they still look like that. He, of course, remember I'd said that his father was really harsh. He was afraid now, he was, because he'd lost all sense of time, of how would he tell his father that his brothers were dead. And he was sure that his father would blame him. So he decided to stay on the hillside for the night. He got early, late afternoon, I should say, early evening, above his village. He decided to stay on the hill and found a little haystack to sleep against and spent most of the night thinking about how he was going to explain to his dad that his brothers were dead. The next morning he got up early wandered down into the village, came in around the corner into the street where the house and barn where was where he had grown up, and all that was there was a smoking 
ruins of a house and barn that had just burnt down, which was his home that he'd grown up in. And he was standing in the street now as an 18-year-old, having left as a 14-year-old and seen and experienced so terribly much horror. As he was standing there, all of a sudden a man touched him on the hand and he turned around and looked at this man and the man said, Herbert, are you Herbert? And Herbert said, yes. And he said, your parents, they burnt in the house yesterday. And Herbert told us, was telling us this story, and he said he fell down on the road, screaming. And he said, it has been so hard to live since, and that, you know, that it happened 70, 40, 25 years before. He said, I choose to lapse into madness and craziness when life gets too difficult. And that's what we saw in the place. And that's how he was choosing to cope with the loss, which isn't really a way of coping, but nevertheless, it was sort of all he knew. And so how do we, how do we live with loss? How do we live with death in our, in our systems? Let me give, uh, I'm going to shorten here, let me give two, uh, two Bible examples here, and I'll uh, pull two together here. There's the story in 1 Samuel 17, I think it is, or is it 1 Kings? I have it written down here, of Elijah, 1 Kings 17. You know, Elijah, the prophet, the Old Testament prophet, has been experiencing the lack of rain. And there's a drought. He goes and lives by a riverside where there's water in the, in the creek or the river, and the ravens bring him food. And finally, the river dries up and the ravens don't show up anymore. And then God tells him, go and find this widow who will feed you. He goes and finds the widow of Zarephath. She has a son. He says to the widow, can you make me some bread? She says, I have the last bit of flour and last bit of oil. It's all I have. And he says, well, make me bread from it. And she said, okay, but I will die because that's all we have left. And the story goes on and he says to her, as long as you make me this bread, your oil supply and your, and your flour supply will never diminish. And he lives there for a period of time. One day, though, the widow's son dies. She screams at him, what kind of man of God are you? You came to take away my food, although it's continued, and you came to take my son away. How can this be? The story goes that he picks the boy up and he says to the mother, leave us alone, and he takes the boy up to the little room where he's been living. And this amazing old-style story recounts how Elijah lay his body on the little boy three times. And the text is fascinating. It says, and the heat from Elijah's body moved into the body of the dead boy and warmed him up and brought him back to life. When my mom passed away in 1988, and it was early on in sort of my work around death and dying, and incidentally, as a person who, who likes to tell funny stories more than anything else, my 30 years of pastoring, the most satisfying work for me has been around death and dying and loss. I can't explain it. But on that, it was the first time I ever touched a dead body. My mom was lying as they are in coffin. I put my hand on her hand, and remembering the Elijah story, 
was struck by how quickly her hand warmed up and realized that my, the heat of my body on the dead hand of my mum warmed her skin back up to body temperature. Didn't bring her back to life, but realized that heat, life heat, can transfer back into a, a dead body. And I think it's a picture of redemption, of how God brings life back into, into a situation of death. In Mark 5, Jesus is out on the street and he meets Jairus. He's a, an important person in the city and his 12-year-old daughter is ill. And he says to Jesus, come and please heal my daughter because Jesus now has the reputation of being a healer. When they get to the house, the people are crying outside the house. And I've lived in the Middle East and have heard the kind of crying that goes on in, in that culture when there's a loss, especially of a child. And, uh, and uh, Jarius says, it's too late. She's already gone. And Jesus says, where is she? And he goes up to her room. He dismisses the people out of the room. He takes the disciples with him and her parents, if I remember the story correctly. And he prays for her and he says, little girl, stand up. And in the story, she stands up and comes back to life. It's one of those hard for us in our age to understand a miracle story like that, but she comes back to life and he presents her back to the family. And they, if it was a fairy tale, we'd say live happily ever after. But nevertheless, uh, she is brought back to life in that story. There's a story of redemption in there. We know in the realities of our life that... When people die, they don't come back to life, at least not in the form that they do. But what often happens for us in death and loss of any kind, in the disruption is we lose a sense of who we are. We kind of die too. And I have discovered often when, when walking with both my own family members and people of the church and the, and the wider community, that when we have lost a loved one, I have found out that when you touch people who have lost someone, they often jump. They often move quickly. They are shocked that they can feel. We lose the ability to feel deeply. We start to, and I think what it is, is there's, we think we're dead. We think we're dead because we're surprised that a touch can be experienced. And so I think that one of the, one of the, uh, the teachings of, uh, or one of the extrapolations from the Jesus story is when he says, little girls stand up. We understand as followers of Jesus that in the face of our losses, the touch of Jesus on our hands, through the people around us in the community and by his spirit, both directly and indirectly, allow us to stand up again. So there is hope because the loss of someone in the community and the faith, it will reassume re we will come back to a kind of normal again. Or what is it? It'll be a new normal. And will it be acceptable? One of my colleagues at the Fraser View Church, our children's pastor, her 21-year-old daughter, traveling through Europe four years ago now, 
They got the call that in a youth hostel she became very ill in Budapest. And by time the second call came, she had passed away in the hospital in Budapest. Um, so this colleague of mine, she, she asked me, I don't know how many times, she said, when will I feel normal again? Well, I said, you won't ever on the one hand, and you will again. It's both and. It's that sort of mysterious spiritual way. You will recover to a place where you have the courage to, to walk again by virtue of the people around you, by your faith, uh, but you will continue to your dying day to miss your daughter tremendously. So, four years later, she still has not buried her daughter's ashes. They still remain in a place in the church where I worked, and the room has not been changed. So, she's still on that journey, so you give each other permission to carry on. Many of you know, uh, just to close this, the stages of uh, this, the Kubler-Ross stages. In losses, we go through, in any order, and not always, nobody follows this, human life doesn't follow, it's not a paint-by-number thing. We go through denial. No, it can't be. I heard a description this morning on CBC radio about a policeman seeing, coming to the door to tell parents that their son had died in a car accident. No, we say no. We go into denial. We then go through anger. Who did it? How did this happen? We go through bargaining. We bargain with God, those of us that have a sense of faith anyway, and even if we don't. Because it strikes me, you know, when you hear, we hear in our culture lots, oh my God when my colleague's daughter died and we did the funeral and there were between four and five hundred teenagers from Richmond in the funeral and I said all of you virtually all of you when you heard of Ariel's passing said oh my God some of you because you were calling to God because you have a relationship with God and some of you because that's what you say when bad things happen oh my God it's interesting that no matter where you are on the scale of faith God gets referenced when bad things happen. Oh my God. And then there's a level of acceptance if, uh, if we, uh, we come to some health. And acceptance doesn't mean that we ever say that that's okay. It's, it's the, it means that you are able to move again. You know, in Isaiah, the text, we will rise up like eagles. We will maybe just walk. And maybe sometimes we can even fly. But God is the same strength in all of those events. And we can wait and we give each other permission. Permission to, uh, to travel at the speed that we won't as our life comes back to some kind of tolerable balance. But it's never completely smooth, is it? Because that's the human condition. But it is our job as human beings, as fellow, uh, fellow journer, journey persons, to help people to find new and healthy balance because we are all deeply connected in the faith community, in the wider community, and within our families and however we describe our families in many, many ways. And Stephen, myself with this uh, First Nations man that I didn't know for 40 years, deeply connected. And I would say, if there was, uh, if any wisdom I could give, that I think the three things that have meant the most or in ways that I through, through by God's grace 
to know how to how to walk with people as they as they're experiencing loss is uh, has not been I will pray with you and I will read you this Bible text. It has been through touch, touching people appropriately to realize that they are still alive, through silence, and I'm a professional talker. They've paid me big dollars for the last 30 years to, to tell, to use words. And so when people die, I go and I sit in their homes and I get them coffee or make dinner or whatever it is that's needed, but mostly sit quietly and be actively present and actively quiet. One of the things that really stunned me in my experience with the First Nations last week, some of the people sat there, I watched, some people I saw for 12 hours sit at a table and not say anything to anyone. They just sat. And that community gathered together, the body was in state there, and they said, we are here just to be with our friend Lloyd for the last 24 hours of his life. And they, they didn't make speeches, they didn't sing songs, they ate some food. Um, they smoked a lot because that was one of the habits that they have. But they just sat. And it was stunning to me to watch how inactive they were, but how peaceful that was for them as a people. So to be actively present and to touch, and here I think is the most surprising thing in my journey through loss, is to laugh, to learn to laugh. And where did I learn this? In my journey at Fraserview Church, which was a, 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 a traditionally ethnic Mennonite Brethren Church, and I probably walked through death with probably a dozen, especially elderly gentlemen. And these elderly gentlemen, I would visit them in the hospital daily in their last four, five, six weeks if we had it often, and it was just a habit that somehow I formed and got to know these men in, in ways that I never had before. It surprised me that as we told each other stories, we laughed more than we cried. And it was amazing. I didn't plan that. I wouldn't plan to go, oh, I'm going to go sit with Brother Giesbrecht and we're, you know, he's three days from death, but we're going to laugh a lot today. It happened out of the relationship because laughter allows the other emotions to also be expressed. And so I don't, I'm not finished this journey yet of understanding why it's important to laugh together around because you're not laughing at the situation I think what it signals is being open to one another and to hearing one another's stories and to laugh when it's time to laugh and to cry when it's time to cry and meet people in the middle of that and, and, and share those moments with them. One example of, of, of a sort of a light moment, one of the women that I was visiting in her last days when I asked her what she missed being in the hospital, she says, they don't let me have chocolate. She says, I love chocolate. She says, I don't think it matters anymore. I'm not going to live much longer. And she says, the other thing I miss is I miss that I can't, haven't been to a communion service for the last two months. So I said to her, I said, Elsie, do you know what Nutella is? She says, no, I don't know what Nutella is. I said, well, it's this sort of chocolate cream that, you eat with a spoon out of the jar when mom's not looking because it's so good and, uh, and it's marvelous and I said I think what I'll do is I will come back tomorrow 
and I will lead you through a communion service. You and I will have a private communion service. And instead of bread and wine, we will have pieces of chocolate and a teaspoon of Nutella. And we will bless God and we will bless the good things in life together. And she laughed and we cried. And we each had a little, you know how you do in a little communion service, you have the little bits. And then we're all finished and she asked me to pray. I prayed for her. And then she said, can you give me the jar and I can eat the rest of it? <laughs> and she did. And th two, three days later, she passed away. And I have this warm memory of, of sharing that moment together around sad death and yet celebrating Christ's love for us and his ability to make us new, but facing directly, absolutely directly, but, but softly, the issues of loss and realizing that things can come at us from any way and when we don't know what we're really feeling or what's going on it's because our life has been disrupted and we give each other the permission to live upside down for a while and there are people around us to hold us when we can't hold ourselves so to you as a community it's it's your journey to walk through your losses walk with each other brothers and sisters hold each other's hands cry together touch each other, be silent, just sit together and find ways to walk through to find out the new normal and as much as it is up to you to make the new normal a healthier one than the old one was. Brad. Thanks, Dan. Brad looks a little different. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that as Brad and I were sort of planning and thinking through grief and loss, one of the things that I, we're always encouraged by is the rich vocabulary that we find in uh, the Psalms, the Psalms of Lament. And they're not always, um, they often give voice to things that are hard for us to voice. And so we're going to have the band play uh, one song here. And I encourage you, you've got on the tables um, each of those little cards of the five stages of anger, denial, uh, depression. I'm forgetting the other two at the, right now. But I encourage you just to take, take one of those and consider either in your, maybe you're personally going through um, a loss of something, a relationship, a person, a, an experience, an ideal, and, um, and consider what stage you feel that you're, you're sitting at. And on the back, I encourage you to just to spend some time talking to God about that. If you're not sure if it's okay to voice anger, denial, bargaining, depression, and acceptance, just read Psalm 88. And allow yourself permission to have a very honest conversation with God today. Tell him exactly what you're feeling and you're thinking in this moment. And we want to stand with you as a community and do this as a community. We don't want to jump to the end, Stan said, sitting with in silence and allowing these emotions to be, to remember the grief and voice that is important, is a very important step. Also wanted to just remind us that one of the things that we have as a community of faith that is so priceless is hope. 
And that's what sets us apart from so many others is that we do have hope. So while we can have deep sorrow, Jesus felt deep sorrow, and we see that expressed, and we see that expressed through these five stages, we don't have to slip into despair. Despair is the absence of hope. Sorrow is acknowledging the great wrong, injustice, sadness that has happened. And yet we still do have hope through Jesus. Hope is not opposed to sorrow. So I encourage you to just sit with those things and invite the pan to play. And uh, anything else, Brad? And just uh, as the band plays, uh, Joel and Sharon are going to come around and receive the offering this morning. And uh, I'll also say a prayer uh, for brothers and sisters in France and for our world. Father, we acknowledge to you today uh, that we live in a place of brokenness. Uh, we live in a world that is topsy-turvy. And so, Father, we lift up to you both the personal circumstances reflected in this room, those yet to come and yet to be, uh, and those also in so many places in our world, Father, that are reeling from loss and from grief. And so, Father, we ask that in this place, in this day, uh, that your peace would come, that your comfort would come, that your grace and your mercy would touch our own lives, and that we would also be instruments of peace, Father, in our own families, in the places we find ourselves. And so we ask all of this in the mighty and the strong and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and the team will lead us in one song. And Joel and Sharon, please come receive the offering around the tables. <laughs>